Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can join us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. Well, I wonder how many of you remember um, some of the rules at your house growing up. For some of you, you're still at the house growing up, so you're still underneath the rules. For some of you, maybe you just remember them. Chances are we, we all had rules, some strip, more strict than others, right, that our house growing up that kind of shaped and, and transformed who we are. I was thinking this week about some of the rules that I had at my parents' house when I was growing up. Uh, so here's a few things that I grew up under. First thing is that you got to eat all your vegetables before you can have dessert, okay? So all my mama's in the room trying to get them healthy babies, okay? And so I developed like this, the, the art of like maneuvering around my English peas so that it looked like I ate them so that I could get to that chocolate cake. Okay, kids, don't do that. All right, that's lying. Don't do that. Okay. All right. Second thing, man, it was don't leave your dirty clothes on the ground, but put them in the hamper for Pete's sake. Okay. Anybody, anybody struggling with that at your house, just willing to testify, telling your kids right here in front of God and the whole family. Okay. No, no jumping on the bed. That's just dangerous. Just don't do that. Okay. Um, put your dirty dishes in the dishwasher and not in the sink. Come on, somebody. How many of you are the dishwasher at your house? Like you are the dishwasher. Okay. Wow, okay, I was making sure, like, dishes were getting washed. Like, for a second, you're like, no, I don't, I don't know, do I? I? I'm the dishwasher at my house, and I'm like, all the time, like, I come every two weeks, come back around and go, listen, these things don't go in the sink, they go in the dishwasher, okay? We turn that thing on, it does the work for me, all right? Don't put them in the sink. That was one of the rules in my house growing up. Um, and then it was uh, be off the computer by a certain time at night. Okay, really, what that what? We didn't have cell phones, okay, for all the students in the room. They, they didn't exist. I know it was crazy, all right? But it was be off the computer by a certain amount of time. All right, really, that was be off of AOL. Like, you had to, you had to click off of Instant Messenger. You got to turn that thing off. And then, uh, and then I got to the point where I could drive, and so it was things like don't speed, okay, just because you don't want to get a ticket. And then uh, be safe, okay, and be home by a certain time. We all had rules uh, at our house growing up. There were house rules that kind of transformed who we are. And now, here's where I am. I think about this this week. I'm a couple decades later, okay, past growing up at mom and daddy's house. And you know what I'm doing now that I'm a parent? I'm making some of the same rules. Like I'm becoming my parents without even trying, okay? It's scary. For those of you not parents yet, just wait. It's coming. You will be them. You will be them. And so, man, it's transforming who I am. But in all seriousness, you know, we can often think about rules and we think of it as something negative. Most of the time our society takes rules and we think it as something negative. But ultimately, rules are very important. Here's why. House rules are important because they determine the identity of those who are in the house or who are a part of the family. Rules shape our identity. As I think back about the rules that I had at my parents' house from eat my English peas to get home by curfew, it was so clear to see how those, role, how those rules shaped who I am now. Those rules helped instill responsibility and diligence and discipline in me as a young man so that I might grow up to be a man. I'm really grateful for house rules today. And so rules shape the identity of those people who are in the house or who are a part of the family. So here's what we're going to do today. We're kicking off a brand new series called House Rules. In this series, I'm not going to tell the parents in the room what rules to put into play at your house. We're not going to talk about the house you live in, but we're going to talk about the spiritual house that you're a part of, the church, the church family. And we're going to talk about the rules that we kind of have for the house. Now, hopefully you'll see these are not rules that like we just came up with because we thought they sounded good. But these are things that are based in Scripture that God has created, that he's laid out to be rules for his family and for his house, the church. 
So what I want to realize today as we step into this series over the next few weeks is that a lot of us have a lot of different ideas and expectations about church. Like you rolled in today in the middle of a summer with some thoughts about what church should feel like, what it should sound like, what they should say, what people should wear. You got some expectations and maybe even rules that you've thought of about church. So here's what I'm asking you to do, me to do in this series, is for us to lay down the rules and the expectations we've got and to listen to the things that God has laid out for his church, for his family, and for his house. So in this series, we're going to look at the who and the what and the why of who we are. And I think that's going to change us to begin to realize more and more about who God created his house to be. Today we're going to tackle the who. The who the church is about, who the church is built on, and how does that change who we are. So if you've got a copy of scripture, let's go Matthew chapter 16, right there in the New Testament, first book, Matthew chapter 16. And if you don't have a hard or digital copy of scripture, we'll put some verses on the screen for you to just track along with where we're going to be today. I'm just going to look at six verses today in Matthew 16. But in these six verses are, man, just some really strong, powerful truths that I think are beginning to change and transform our mind to understand the rules that God has for his house, the church. So kind of an outline of of how we're going to lay this out today, Matthew 16, six verses. We're going to see three things. We're going to see a question, there'll be a response, and then there'll be a promise, okay? So for all my outline note takers, there'll be a question, then we're going to see a response, and then we're going to end with a really, really good promise. Matthew 16, verse 13, here's how it picks up. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the first part of the story that we see is the question. Okay, the question. Jesus gathered with his disciples, his closest guys. They're in the room together, and he asked them this question. Hey, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? That's a pretty good question if you ask me. Now, it may not be a question that we want to ask all the people who are close to us every single day because sometimes we might not want to know. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? All right, sometimes we had one of them days and they're like, I don't want to know who you think that I am. All right, but Jesus asked it because he's sovereign. He's in control and he was testing his disciples. So he asked him, hey, who do, who do you, who do other people say that I am? And the disciples start giving these answers. We read them in verse 14. Um, they said, well, some people thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. Other people thought Jesus was the fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. Some people thought Jesus was a resurrected Jeremiah. And then other people were like, well, I don't think Jesus is just a really special prophet. He's just kind of like a special prophet. But notice what the disciples didn't respond by saying. They didn't respond by saying, well, people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why didn't they say that? That was the right answer, right? Well, that was not a popular opinion in Israel at that time. It was was very widespread unbelief, and so the disciples didn't respond that way. But they gave Jesus an accurate answer. They answered the question of who do other people say that I am. But then Jesus asked the follow-up question to the question, and nobody saw that one coming. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? See, Jesus spins the question from who do other people say that I am to who who do you say that I am? The reality is, sometimes it's a lot easier to answer for other people than it is to be real about ourselves, isn't it? Jesus knew that. He says, no, 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 not who do they say that I am. 
Who do you say that I am? And in this moment, Jesus was no longer looking for the public perception, but he was looking for a personal response. Who do you say that I am? And the reality is that throughout time, that question has never changed. Today, Jesus wants to know from you as a mom, a dad, a husband, high school student, grandparent, who, who do you say that he is? Just like we can have a lot of different ideas and thoughts about church, sometimes we can have a lot of different thoughts and ideas about Jesus and about who he is. The reality is there are many people, maybe even some in the room today or watching online, who are living on a second-hand belief, a second-hand faith or response to that question of who Jesus is. And maybe for you, really the only understanding, if you're real, the only real understanding that you have about who Jesus is, is maybe what, what grandma kind of forced into you when you were growing up, or what mom and dad drug you into, or maybe you're dragging in you into right now as a student. Or maybe it's what your friends say, or it's like the chatter at work that really is just chatter about church and religion, not really about Jesus. Or maybe it's what you've like heard on TV, or you read in some book, or you saw in a meme on Facebook. And maybe that's what's building the foundation of who you really think Jesus is. But you've never really experienced Jesus for yourself. You've never had not the personal, you've never had the personal relationship between you and Jesus for what you believe him to be. See, here's why that's so important. Because what we understand is that personal response to that question is the key to either unlock or lock us out of the promise of life in Christ. Who do you say that he is? The great Christian writer um, C.S. Lewis wrote this quote. You'll see it on the screen. Follow it with me. Gets deep. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. He says, people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, Jesus really only fills one role, and that's Savior. Who do you say that he is? See, Jesus asked that question. He didn't want to know what the public said. He wanted to know what they personally responded and the disciples kind of like scratching their head because they're trying to figure out now the perfect answer to the question, Peter, one of the bold guys in the group, okay, he's courageous. He stands up and he gives the response for our story today. So we got the question, and then here's Peter's response. You ready? Look back, verse 16, Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Peter's response was bold. It was contrary to a lot of, a lot of the opinion of the culture, but it was filled with truth. Peter said, you're, you're the Messiah, meaning that he believed that Jesus was the anointed one. He was the chosen one of God, sent by God to humanity to reconcile them back to God. Peter's going, you're, you're it. And then he goes deeper in the way he says it. He says, you are the son of the living God. 
giving even more clarity to what Peter believed. That, that Jesus wasn't just like a creation of God, not a son of God, but like, you're it. You're the way of the living God. Yahweh, the one true God. And Peter lays it out. He goes, you are it. Peter called Jesus Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And then Jesus heard Peter's response, and he affirms him. It's got to feel good when you get affirmed by Jesus. Look at what Jesus says, verse 17. Jesus replied, hey, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this, this response you've given, it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, Peter had received this understanding to call Jesus Messiah and Lord, not from secondhand faith. See, it, it had been revealed to him by God. It wasn't public perception, but it was his personal response. And he answered in that way because he had seen and known God. And Peter said, I don't know what everybody else is saying about you, Jesus. I don't know what the crowd is saying, but here's what I'm saying. You are it. You are Messiah. You are Lord. There's no one like you. Again, I wonder, what's your response? What is your response? See, just like with Peter, Jesus knows whether the confession that you're making with your life right now, whether it's real because it's an experience you've had with Jesus and are walking in, or whether it's something that you're just living off secondhand faith from, or maybe it's something that you're just faking it till you make it. Man, put on the face front on Sunday, but the rest of the life doesn't match up with that belief that you say is the foundation of who you are. Man, Jesus knows. God knows. And in this moment, Jesus saw Peter's faith in his response. Peter was bold. He stood up. He declared it. And then Jesus gives us the promise of the story that changes ultimately all of history. Look at verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18 says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. One of the most history-shaping verses in all of Scripture right there. Jesus takes this response of this, this knuckle-headed disciple. Okay, Peter had messed up a lot. And Jesus takes his response, and Jesus gives a promise. He says, hey, Peter, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. The original Greek word here that Jesus used um, for the word church is the word ekklesia. Um, say that with me. Ekklesia. Yeah. See, that's only one of three times in all of Scripture where that word is used, is right here. You see, the, in the original translation of the English Bible, um, the word church wasn't even used in that spot. It was actually the word congregation, a growing group of people. That's how it was originally translated. That's how Jesus defined this original use of the word church in Matthew 16. Look at this. Not a building, uh, not a segment of time on Sunday, not a clique of religious people, not, not motions that you go through to do good and do right. No, Jesus said church, ecclesia, is the people. It's the people. That's why around here, from day one, when we've lost, we've never said, I go to church. It's not right. No, what we say is, I am the church. You are the church. It's not brick and mortar. It's flesh and blood. And the New Testament kind of lays that out even more. Look at what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Look at this picture he draws. He says, you also, you are like living stones. And what's happening with you? You're being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood so that you would, you would offer worship, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's the truth today. We don't come to church, but we are the church, which holds magnificent significance for our lives way outside of a one little hour on Sunday morning. It means that we don't have a church face on Sunday and then we have a work face on Monday or a school face or a social face or a family. No, it says you are the church continually. You never step outside of that identity if you're in Christ. And Jesus gives this, this calling that I'm going to build my church and my church will not be a building, but it's going to be a people who are redeemed by me, living for me 24-7-365. Look back at verse 16, though, and Jesus, he says this phrase. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, a lot of people have kind of debated over time since Jesus spoke, what's the rock that Jesus is talking about? And there's a few different interpretations, and I think some of them are pretty close. I think there's one that maybe kind of precedes others. Some people think that Jesus is talking about Peter, because if you know Peter's name, it translates as stone or rock. And so people are going, well, what Jesus was saying, he's going to use Peter. Peter's it. And I would say that there's a lot of that that's accurate. Because if you read the New Testament, man, Jesus uses Peter. God uses Peter in some crazy ways to help build the church. But I don't think that's necessarily the one. Some people would say, hey, well, the rock that Jesus was describing, it was Peter's response that Jesus was the Messiah. And I would say that's definitely a part of it. Because that, that response is the basis, is the foundation of who we are as gospel-believing Christ followers, okay? But, but the one that I really love, the interpretation I really love, and I think maybe most appropriate, is that Jesus was saying this. Jesus was saying that he was the rock. Jesus was saying that he was building his church on the truth of himself. That he was the who that the church would be about and would be built on. That it would be his church, his bride, his family, and he was the rock. See, throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to many times as the rock or the stone or the cornerstone. Psalm 118.22, Jesus is called the cornerstone. Isaiah 28.16, Jesus is called the tested stone or the precious cornerstone. Acts 4, we see Peter himself, okay, called Jesus the rock or the stone. Look at it on the screen, Acts 4.11 and 12. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, that the world put away. But now he has become the cornerstone. And through him, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The same Peter who in Matthew 16 declared Jesus to be Messiah, in Acts 4 he goes, no, but Jesus is the stone. He's the rock. He's the foundation. Jesus is the rock and the who on which the church is built. And throughout Scripture, it's proven over and over and over and over. I want to show you three different verses. Ephesians 1.22, look at this. And God, the Father, he placed all things under his feet, Jesus. And he appointed him to be head over everything for the what? For the church, that he would be the leader. Colossians 1.18, we read it earlier. It says, and he, Jesus, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. He's in control. Finally, Ephesians 2, 19, Paul says this, Consequently, you and I, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but now we're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. And here's what we're built on. Watch it. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building, the people, the family is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The rock on which Jesus was saying, I will build my church, was him. He is the who of the church. In other words, it's Jesus' church, and he's the leader, not us. Here's what that means for some of our church mindset expectations today. It means that the church doesn't belong to the pastor. The church is not the staff's. The church doesn't belong to the people who attend the most or serve the most or give the most. The church is Jesus' church. He is the leader and sovereign over the church. Now, when you and I call our death and resurrection and pull it off in three days, then we can have our own church. But as for now, the church belongs to Jesus. It is His. He sits sovereign and in control. So what does that mean for us? We get it, but what does that mean for us? Well, I want to give you two things that it means for this spiritual house right here. Okay? First, it means that we celebrate and teach Jesus as the centerpiece of the church and the hero of the story. That's why when you walk in this room where we gather physically together every week, every seven days, we, we always are going to declare and sing songs of worship to God. We say things like, Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise. Jesus, Jesus, we surrender our lives to you. Jesus, there's no one like you. Why do we say that? Because Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the hero of the story. It means that every time that we gather together and we open up this book, we open up God's word, every time it's going gonna, it's gonna to get back to Jesus. You know why? Because he's the centerpiece of the story. It means that every time that you drop off your preschooler in little life or your elementary kid in kid life or your student life, student shows up on Wednesday nights and we open up the truth of the word, you know what? We're always looking for creative ways to speak the name of Jesus. Because he's the centerpiece of the story. We really believe it's all just one story. And every bit of it is telling one big story. 66 books, hundreds and thousands of years. It's just a story of God pursuing his people. People who ran from him and he pursues them. And you know how he does it? Through one main character, one hero, and his name is Jesus. So what do we do with that? Well, it means that Jesus is the centerpiece of the church. He's the hero of the story. And we're going we're gonna to treat it that way. Here's a second thing that it means. Jesus as the leader of the church means this. It means that we will submit to his plans and his leading. He's in charge. This means that there will be sometimes that like as a church, we'll, we'll make decisions or we'll do things or we'll follow through with things that may not make a whole lot of sense to us in our human mindset. It means that we may, we may step out in faith and do something that we don't feel fleshly comfortable about, but we know that Jesus is saying it, and if Jesus is in control, then he calls the shots. Let's take, uh, maybe for some of you, you were here with us uh, this past Easter a few months ago. We came to you about six, eight weeks before Easter, and we said, hey, here's what we feel like God's saying. We're going to do, do five Easter gatherings across Easter weekend. Five, one weekend. Some of you are like, yeah, no, uh -uh, no way. Yeah, and then we said, and we think, like, we think God's calling us to pray that a thousand people would show up to a shopping center church in Pearl, Mississippi. And some of you are like, yeah, preacher's on the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. He's lost it. Yep. Some of you are like, man, that staff is crazy. Like, seriously? No way. Not happening. 
I'm, I'm aware. Some of you thought that. And then we came to you and were like, hey, well, listen, so if we're praying for that many people to show up, like, we're going to ask you on a holiday weekend, like, you're going to have to, you're going to have to serve, not just like one gathering, but like, we need you to be in Little Life for like two or three times or stand out in the parking lot for a couple of hours because if all those people showing up, we want to serve them, we want to love them, we want to welcome them. And you were like, you ain't going to get people to do that. Not in today's, people are busy. It's holiday weekend. They got family in town. You know what happened? We prayed. We planned. We prepared. You served. And a thousand and three people showed up to a little shopping center church in Pearl, Mississippi. Listen to me. God's plans are always better than our plans. Even when they don't make sense to us. So, but Jesus being the head of the church means we're going to teach that he's the centerpiece of the story. He's the leader. He's the hero. But it also means that we're going to let him lead. And when he calls us to do things, we'll walk in faith to trust him. But there's one final part of the promise that, man, if you miss it, you miss all the joy and the strength of what Jesus is saying. Look back at Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock who is me, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus promises that not only will he build his church made up of redeemed people, okay, on the foundation of himself, but Jesus says this, he says the gates of Hades or hell or death will not overcome the building of his church. He says he won't take it out. So here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, hey, well, I'm putting together a small group of people. But there's a really good chance in a couple of decades you guys are going to kind of fizzle out. It's not going to work out. Is that what he's saying? He was not also saying, hey, I'm going to put together this little religious clique of people, okay? Y'all just love the people who are like you. All right, make sure you all dress up and, and look at the people who don't dress up and, and kind of turn your nose at them. But listen, when things get tough, there's a really good chance you guys are bowing out. That's not what he was saying. No, Jesus was looking past this moment in Caesarea Philippi, past the disciples and he could see the turmoil and the chaos that would come in all of history, even leading up to today. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, listen, soon you guys won't be here anymore. And I won't be here, not physically on the earth. And it's going to get hard. It's going to get crazy. There's going to be evil and chaos and turmoil and terrorism in the world. But I just want you to know, this church I'm putting together, not this building, but this people I'm putting together, it's going to stand. It will prevail. Nothing will destroy it. It will not disappear. The gates of hell will not even be able to overcome it. You see, Jesus made this promise to his disciples around the year 30 AD that he would build his church. A couple years later, you know what happened? Jesus was crucified and he was put in a tomb for three days. You know what people thought? It's over now. And then he got back up. And then in his final words before he left the earth to ascend back to the Father, he said in Matthew 28, he said, hey, you, my people, my church, now I'm asking you to go into all the world. And I want you to take this good news, this gospel that Jesus is sovereign and Lord and Messiah, and I want you to share it with everybody. And in that moment, the church began to be built. And in 42 AD, Mark went to Egypt. In 49 AD, Paul went to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul then went to Greece. In 52 AD, we see that Thomas goes to India. 
54 AD, Paul took his third missionary journey in Scripture. 174 AD, the first Christians were reported in Austria. 280 AD, some 250 years after Jesus spoke it, the first Christian churches emerged in northern Italy. In 350 AD, 31.7 million people in Rome claimed Jesus Christ as Lord. In 432 AD, Patrick headed to Ireland in the original St. Patrick's Day, which was actually there to spread the good news of the gospel. In 596 AD, Gregory the Great sent Augustine to reintroduce the gospel to a place called Canterbury, and they baptized 10,000 people in the first two years. In 635 AD, the first Christian missionaries went to China. 740 AD, Christian monks landed in Iceland. 900 AD, missionaries reached Norway. 1200 AD, the Bible was translated into 22 different languages. 1490 AD, the first Christians now reported in Kenya. 1501 AD, Pope Alexander III provided land in Spain to the natives if religious education would be provided. 1537 A.D., Pope Paul III ordered that the Indians of the New World would be brought to Christ by the preaching of the Word. 1554 A.D., 1,500 new Christians are reported in Thailand. 1620 A.D., the pilgrims arrived in America, thank you Jesus, in search of religious freedom. 1734, the Great, Christian, or the great Awakening sweeps through the American colonies. 1790, the Second Great Awakening moves through America. 1817, the state of Mississippi was affirmed as a part of the Union. 1830, the American Bible Society begins printing and distributing one million Bibles per year. 1973, the city of Pearl, Mississippi was established. In July 2011, seven people gathered in a living room in central Mississippi around a calling to start a new church in the city of Pearl, Mississippi. On August 12, 2012, 123 people showed up at Kids Rock Business in Pearl, Mississippi for the first ever gathering of The Exchange. In January 2013, The Exchange moved its weekend gatherings to Pearl Lower Elementary in July 2013. Six years ago this coming week, the exchange completed renovations of its space in the Bright Shopping Center and moved in. And July 14, 2019, the exchange continues to gather around the truth of God's Word, seeing people's lives and eternities change through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Church, what we're part of is not new. Jesus promised 2,000 years ago that he would build his church. And when he said it, he meant it. And he said, even the gates of hell will not be able to hold it back. Even death itself, not even his own, would be able to hold it back. There is no better leader for the church and there's nothing better for the church to be founded on than the truth of Jesus. Only he can make the promise that death won't hold it back. Because he's the only one that death could not hold back. And there's a lot of people today that would say things like, man, the church is washed up. People are leaving the church. It's irrelevant today. Why are you wasting your life being a part of that? And I'm here to tell you that Jesus made a promise. And he has kept it. And you will never do anything more important than in your life than to be a part of a local community of believers centered around Jesus because it's been the center of God's activity for 2,000 plus years. And it doesn't seem to be changing. 
You see, Jesus was not just designed to be the cornerstone of the church, but he was sent designed to be the cornerstone of your life. This is what Isaiah the prophet wrote. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Look at this promise. He says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. His name would be Christ. A tested stone, a precious stone for a sure foundation. And look at this. The one who relies on it, on him, in him, will never be stricken with panic. That word never that Isaiah used there, in the original language, it was the strongest form of the negative word that he could find. Here's what that meant. It was a lock. It was a given. You could take it to the bank that the one who trusted in Christ and built their life on him and followed his word, that they would not be shaken. Listen to me. That's not a belief that comes secondhand. That's not a belief that says, well, I think I know who Jesus is. No, that's a belief that's based on the hope that says Jesus has redeemed and saved me and now I live wholly for him. Over 2,000 years ago, the living stone, Jesus, said he would build his church and 2,000 years later, his promise has remained true. And when all the dust settles, and this life is over, and this world is no more, two things will remain. Jesus and his church. Jesus and his church. And if Jesus is good enough to be the cornerstone of a church that's lasted thousands of years and will go all the way into eternity, Jesus is good enough to be the cornerstone and the foundation of your life too. Because you are the church. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.